This is Pat Evans with the Mint and Brew Podcast. Last week, I ventured to the east side of the state and hung out with the partners of Bee Nectar. They're pretty cool, so you should listen in as we discuss mead. And Alton Brown, if you're listening, they really want to hang out with you. Alright, so I'm at Bee Nectar with uh, Brad, Carrie, and Paul. What are your guys' positions, and, and then maybe say your name so they can have a, you know, the listeners can have a voice to name, position type. Uh, I'm Carrie. I'm the one of the founders and owners and brand creator, I guess. Perfect. Um, Brad Dahlhofer, uh, also one of the founders, and uh, yeah, I do pretty much anything that we don't have a person to do, whatever <laughs> that is. <laughs> All right. Um, Paul, partner, um, our research and development and uh, technology. Okay. So you'll have to excuse me because I know I like mead, but I'm not well versed in it. So when I make, you know, when I ask questions and stuff, just bear with me. Um, but I just want to start because, you know, Michigan's a beer state. How did you guys start mead? And it was, I mean, how many years ago now? Ten ish? Almost seven. Seven. Okay. I thought it was 2005. Yeah, so how did it get started, and why mead and not beer or wine? Or... Well, we didn't have enough money to start a brewery. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's already plenty of beer out there. Right. And one thing we noticed that there wasn't really a lot of great mead readily available. Okay. So, fortunately, Brad was starting to learn how to do that at home. Paul and him started doing a lot more of it, and it became really good. So we thought, you know, probably something we should put out there. And we didn't really have a, a, a plan to fill a big niche in the market and grow a big business. This is just something <laughs> we thought, hey, this is fun. If we could just, you know, make these five-gallon batches or 15-gallon batches and just sell them around town, that'd be kind of neat. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it was really going to be kind of more of like a nice and weekend's business until he lost his job. <laughs> so it kind of forced your hand? Yep. So it was kind of like... Hmm. Yeah, I was at work and he like texted me and he's like, we're going big. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and then like a couple days later, he sent me a picture of a tanky bot. Yeah. So that was when we got that thousand liter. Yeah. I took my severance pay and my dad was selling his motorcycle and I always wanted that bike. And here I am with no job, a three month old baby and a wife who's like, just buy the damn motorcycle. You're never going to spend money on yourself. And so we did that, <laughs> and we put the rest of it into a big shiny tank, and uh, yeah, just tried to figure it out. Okay. So you started with one tank. What, I mean, again, I'm not very well versed in mead, so kind of take me through the process a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is that all you need? Well, yeah, and the thing <laughs> is, is that until we were going to you know, do this full time, we were fine with just five gallon batches. I mean, as home brewers, we had built a lot of our own equipment, just like most home brewers do right. in, their, in their basement or garage or stovetop. And the, the nice thing about mead was that we didn't have to really uh, buy boilers and, you know, boil kettles and mash tons and all this stuff that's really, really expensive. Uh, so the overhead was, was really low. Um, I think the biggest challenge for us at the time, though, was when we did say, okay, we're going to need a bigger tank, you know, to, to make enough product to make actually make a living at this. We hadn't 
really thought about how to make it on a larger scale. I mean, even though you're just mixing honey and water, the the idea of mixing up 100 or 200 or 300 pounds of honey at a time into water was just kind of like <laughs> looking at each other going, how are we going to do that? So we right. tried creating all kinds of little contraptions and tools and inventing our own stuff. And in the end, we ended up just using a, a big drill and a, and a mixing paddle, kind of like you'd mix up paint or something wow. like that, you know, but, but kind of made for, for home brewing and stuff. And we did it in a 55 gallon drums and, and just we'd do like six of those at a time. And it was a, it was kind of a, a an eye-opening experience like okay wow scaling this is going to take some creativity in terms of technique there's no equipment out there to make large scales of mead right yeah i mean you know making mead is totally different than brewing beer right. you know as far as there's no mash there's no we don't boil the the must at all so there's no sterilization of the must it's literally just mixing honey and water together and then you pitch the you pitch the yeast from that and that's that's it there's no you don't create your own sugars. The sugars are already there from the honey. So right. It's just a different, it's a totally different perspective. I guess in the grand scheme of things, like you saying, that it's the equipment up front is, is cheaper, but there's there's other challenges that, right. that you have to figure out. So It sounds really simple. It does. <laughs> but I have to imagine it's really hard to make really good meat. That's always the joke. <laughs> it is really easy to make meat. Right. It's very hard to make great meat. Right. Unfortunately, we had um, a lot of people that came before us in the home brewing world, and and even a, a really famous home brewer named Ken Schramm, who had mm-hmm. written a book on the subject. And uh, you know, I think we pretty much dog-eared that book to death. <laughs> and then when we finally actually met Ken, find found out that he lived like 15 minutes right. away from us, we we started talking to him and stuff, and. You know, uh, we got a lot of really good people to learn from. So technique-wise, I mean, the, the, the resources were out there on the Internet. It was just a matter of compiling all the best practices together and figuring out what worked for us. Right. And so the joke is, yeah, it's really easy to make meat. <laughs> it's just not easy to make it great. Right. So you started with the one tank. What have you guys scaled up to now? And uh, lots of them. Lots of big tanks. <laughs> <laughs> lots of big shiny things, as my friend John we've would got, say. I guess we've got, we've got four, well, I guess it's going to be five different size groups. Okay. We've got the really small batches, which is basically, we call it B-size. It's kind of the R&D, it's the research right. and development segment of the business. And that's where I'm kind of working right now. Um, we actually are now doing beer in that, in that system, actually. It's basically one barrel is kind of like the goal. Sometimes two barrels, so... Um, that system is basically like the launching pad for new products. It goes into the tap room and sold there. Um, if it does well, it goes into a new, another segment. Now we have it's about a thousand liters, which was the big system for us <laughs> at the beginning. Right. But now it's it's actually our it's kind of like um, getting out regionally into the markets a little bit. You know, it's right. um, starting to possibly get the, uh, developed into a name. Yeah, like our one-offs, our, right. our festival stuff. Exactly. You know, and like, you know, a couple kegs might make it down to Florida, for instance. Yeah. Okay. So once it gets past that, if it's still doing really well, then we start thinking about developing names for it and stuff. Um, and then it goes into our 4,000 liter system, which is our, you know, which is what has been our, you know, cream, you know, right. basically what zombie killer, like, kind of started that whole thing. Um, and that's actually been developed now where it's like 
we actually take two 4,000 liter batches and blend them together to make a 60 barrel batch. <laughs> and that's, so that's what's going out the door right now, 60 okay. barrel batches, but they're, they're blended together. But we've recently just purchased six new 2,000 gallon tanks, 60 barrels. And uh, so those are going to be done in one tank now. So we're going to have the option of using the 4,000 liters as their own batches instead of blending them together. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to create more variety. Um, then we have one other system, which is our still needs. And we, do, we primarily do that on 2,000 liters. Um, and a lot of the stuff we're doing now is barrel aged. Um, if not, it's like just, you know, like, like a cherry chipotle. Um, or uh, devil's juice, you know, something like that. Where it's um, that's the system that's done on is about two thousand liters. We also have about a hundred oak barrels in our in our uh, arsenal. Yeah. Uh, so, like annual output last year was about one hundred and twenty-five thousand gallons, and um, we were almost at peak capacity most of the year. And this year, with these new six six new tanks, we just brought in plus another couple of bright tanks at 16 and 30 we're estimating our output to be somewhere around uh, 250,000 gallons a year okay. not that we're going to hit that you right. know right away right so how far do you guys distribute you just said florida mm-hmm. we've got distribution in about 20 or so states, 21 states, something like that, um, as far out as Alaska, California, um, most of the East Coast and the Midwest, and we just started doing some exporting out to Europe last year, um, primarily just Denmark. Uh, we got invited to go and do a, this Copenhagen beer celebration from uh, that McKellar puts on, so that was kind of cool. It gave us a good excuse <laughs> to send some product over there. Uh, but ever since then, we've started making a lot of friends. So we're, we're, we're actually hoping to make a big push in the UK uh, probably within the next year. Yeah. Is it big over there? Mead? Is mead? No, I mean, no? surprisingly, most people would think that it's right. bigger in England and all that because of the Knights of the Round Table and of stuff. And <laughs> I, I mean, I think the reality is, is that mead just, mead just disappeared everywhere on right. the planet. I mean, people have known of it. it. It's existed in our culture, you know, kind of in the deep down in the, the subliminal cockles <laughs> of our minds, you know, <laughs> right. uh, but it, it was always attributed, associated with, you know, either a holiday or, you know, some type of the, the solstice or whatever, right. and very few people drank it because it was always this really syrupy, sweet, high alcohol thing that you just couldn't drink much of. Right. Okay. So knowing that there's not a ton of large meat makers... Are there any besides you guys? That are you calling that? me fat? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Um, are there any other mead makers that are, like, sizable? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, there are. Are there um, any other fat mead makers? There, there? Yeah. <laughs> Who you call fat? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, there's there's some really big guys. Uh, Redstone out in Colorado, Rabbit's Foot in California. Um, there's there's quite a few of them, um, you know. Yeah, Moonlight is really getting big too. Uh, Michael Fairbrother out in New Hampshire is making some fantastic product and and being a really good ambassador to the to the brand. And I think a lot of us, you know, we kind of had those, those. There were a couple of early guys out there like Mike Fowl and, and, and David Myers at, at Redstone and, and uh, Rabbit's Foot who kind of 
showed us that it was possible. And now what we're seeing is a lot of, you know, kind of us, this newer generation, you know, kids in, on the block type of thing uh, coming out and trying to, you know, trying to be bigger, make it more popular, things like that. And, you know, there's like a kind of a culture growing, you know, there's a, there's a little trade association, the American Mead Makers Association, and we're just trying to kind of work together and grow it up. So even, you know, as we record this, you know, that next meadery that's going to blow up may just be opening, right. you know, and in a year from now, they could be huge, you know, doing their own 100,000 gallons a year, you know, it's, it's, it's growing really fast. Okay. Um, where do you get that crossover? Because I know like a lot of people in West Michigan love mead now because there's some sort of crossover that they're getting with beer. Where do you guys see that? I mean, how do you get the, the crossover? Well, for I think for us, with Paul and I, we started off as homebrewers first. I mean, and I think the idea was, yeah, we loved beer, but I think if you really boil it down, we were really enthralled with the fact that you could actually make alcohol at home. <laughs> so yeah, beer is something that we wanted to make, but but cider and and in the back of this home brewing book was this thing on mead, and you know it, it's kind of like if you got a passion for cooking, right? You may start off wanting to make a good pasta sauce or something, but eventually, if you're creative, you want to start doing other cuisines, you know, French right. cooking and you know Thai cooking and whatnot and. Well, it's that old adage, you know, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you're a homebrewer, <laughs> if it can ferment, you know, you want to try to ferment it and right. make it good, you know. And if, you know, you know, when you start out making meat, we didn't make good meat at first. I mean, yeah. it was okay. Right. But it was like, the challenge is to make it. So because Michigan's a big beer state, it was just natural that any kind of craft beverage, I mean, it's starting to become a big distilling state, yeah. too. We've got amazing, like, just right down the street, right. Valentine Distilling, man. It's crazy good, and it's happening all over. I, mean, right. I think we're finding that this is more of a food revolution, not just beer, not just meat, not just anything. It's We want to have those little luxuries in life, and especially in Detroit where we got hit so hard by that recession in 2008, you know, and that's what happened. We, we're like, no, we want to do something else. We want to do something better and bigger. Yeah, we opened right in the middle of the worst recession in decades, and right. people are like, how is that? It was. Well, it's alcohol. I mean, <laughs> we needed to get a little buzz also, on. I think it's also important to realize, though, that the market we were really looking at is, is like, it's the beer background. Even though we needed a winemaker's license, I wouldn't want to go to a wine show and try mead. Wine mm, is wine. I right. mean, to me, that's a very different thing. So, with the mentality of like the craft beer industry in mind, I think that's why it probably did so well because. That industry is is open to anything, any ingredient, mix it up, make it crazy, mm -hmm. and that's and that's what they love, and that's what we were really, that's kind of what we had in mind anyway. With that grit, that punk rock attitude, <laughs> of we'll never die that we have in Detroit. Right. I think that the, I think that to answer your question as best I can is that I think the enthusiasts really had a lot to do with it because meat is included in the BJCP guidelines, and so right. I think that the enthusiasts know that, and so they know that it's somewhat part of that group and so granted it's not a malt beverage but there is a there is a hybrid mead called a braggot that is associated with beer because it's a malt meat you right. know so um i mean there is a crossover i think in in a lot of different ways not just the attitude but also you know from this the general standpoint of education about what it is you know a lot of people learn about it through 
the BJCP program, or, and a lot of enthusiasts go through that. So. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about like your branding, because I think one thing that catches a lot of people's eyes is the bottle, which is cool, the names, the labels. Um, how did that all get started? Where does that... It's, well, <laughs> um, it usually it just starts out with us sitting around drinking a few beers and coming up with names that we find humorous or entertaining, <laughs> and we build off of that. And okay. a lot of it comes from, you know, we're big movie geeks, and, you know, we like a lot of just like the subculture stuff, and we want to tap into that, because I think a lot of other people appreciate it too. So we really just like to play off of that and really, like, connect with our fans because you know they like a lot of the same things we do and right. you know it's sort of like an inside joke a lot of these <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I know everybody goes crazy over zombie killer well, not just because of the name but because people love zombies zombies are huge right now right and so Mead called that alright let's try it Where, I mean when when you guys started to take off how did you I mean what was the reaction I mean well, there's so many different phases of our growth. I mean, even if it's only been seven years it, since we opened, the, the, the phases of, of our blowing up, as you say, happened, you know, in, in very different stages. Initially, you know, even with our branding and stuff, we, we, did, we knew that nobody really understood meat and we wanted to focus more on explaining and educating what these different things were. We focused more on different traditional meads using different honeys. So we had a wildflower mead, an orange blossom mead, a buckwheat mead, a tupelo mead. Uh, and it really helped people understand the different flavors. And so, you know, what honeys, what different honeys could taste like as a mead. And we were pretty generic in our branding, but we wanted to drive home the, the logo, drive home our brand, who right. we were. So there was that, and that nobody had really been doing that on any, you know, we weren't even doing it on a large scale at that point, but, but people weren't really seeing other varieties of, of traditional meads, different varieties of honey at the time. So that was really cool, and a lot of like what Paul's saying, the enthusiast people that were getting into it for the first time appreciated that. Then this kind of second phase that we went through was kind of by accident. I mean, the, the zombie killer was really not meant... It, it wasn't like we had this grand idea and said, hey, I got an idea, let's right. do this thing and it'll sell really well. I mean, it was just kind of a fluke. We, we made this recipe as just kind of like a custom batch for one of our distributors and, you know... In the end, we, we didn't have the equipment to really do it on a large scale. Carbonation, you know, even as little carbonation as we do in our meads, um, is something that requires a whole different type of equipment that we couldn't afford, you know. And but once we created it on a small scale, and I mean literally small, we were we were putting it in in kegs, putting pressure on it, and just shaking the crap out of that keg, yeah, you know. The first batch was only like 50 gallons. Yeah, it was like one drum, I think, like one 45-gallon yeah. drum or something like that. But uh, it was the first time we said, hey, let's do a fun label, let's do something beyond that traditional look and feel and, and come up with a fun name for it. And uh, that just kind of, and that that's what, brought us into this next phase of our growth uh, and, and so that kind of created a whole different kind of excitement and, and, and interest in what we were doing 
So looking at that, how do you guys develop new recipes and say, you know, what's next? Then? We use a Ouija board mostly. Okay. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. It's a good way to do it. It spells out ingredients. <laughs> we put them together, put them in a hat, check it out. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, first and foremost, we promote we promote creativity from within. A lot like 3M, where they encourage their employees to come up with ideas. Um, a lot of our a lot of our recipes were started by employees, and okay. so you know, um, a lot of what my job is to figure out how to take that idea and and make it work commercially. And I think that you know you know like like things like uh, Kill the Golfers, you know, that was developed by Ian actually, and um, I helped make that happen commercially, finding ways to get ingredients to actually make it work commercially. So the idea though was basically like, we like Arnold Palmer's, you know, like just a lemonade and, <laughs> right. you know, lemonade and iced tea. Well, can we make that into a meat? And yes, of course you can. So that's, that's where that idea came from. So like you think about culinary things like food, basically going back to the food thing, it really is a big part of developing new recipes. We think Alton Brown is the coolest guy in the world. And Alton, if you're listening to this, please come hang out with us. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, like, you know, and then, like, things like Necromancon and Black Fang, you know, it was, like, basically, I was, like, I like fruit and spice together, you know, right. it's, a, it's, it's an interesting culinary experience to do that, and so, you know, we just did a bunch of different bench trials and just figured out some things that worked together, and then, then we just piloted it out on a smaller system, you know, like 30, you know, 30 to 50 gallons, and um, it did well, you know, as far as, like, people trying it, you know, in the tap room and stuff, and so it's, like, developed it further, and then you come up with the name, and then you come up with the branding, and you know, and that's really, it's really the progression of how it goes through the business is just kind of starting with the, an idea and then figuring out if it can even work commercially um, and then come up with branding. It's, it's complicated and it takes a long time. I mean, some products have taken two years to get to the market. Right? Wow. So. That's great. So where would you guys say meat is as an industry? I guess it's still kind of looped in with the brewing industry, but meat makers are... Compared to brewing, I think we're the equivalent of like 1984 beer industry, okay. craft beer industry, right now. You know, we got our Bells, we got our, you know, Boston Brewing, and you know, our, our Anchor, and you know, right. Sierra Nevadas of the company, you know, of the industry. I, I, I think that that's kind of the equivalent of where we're at. We had some really early pioneers, like you know, like the Fritz Maytags of the industry, you know, like right. your David Meyer and your Mike Fowles and stuff. And, uh, you know, we look up to those guys as the real pioneers. Uh, and now we're kind of like the new kids on the block going, hey, hey, let's see what we can do too, you know. Yeah. So what, what do you think the capabilities are for me in the market? A lot of it's going to be limited to what we can legally do. Um, we're really confined by a lot of federal laws that kind of put us in a default category of wine, but, but kind of limited because of the rules that wine has. Uh, whether it's carbonation, whether it's the types of ingredients. And it all makes sense because back, you know, long ago, <laughs> they were trying to prevent snake oil salesmen from, you know, putting all adjuncts, which is just kind of cheaper sugars and stuff like that, right. into grape wine and trying to sell it off as like a, you know, French Bordeaux or something yeah. like that. You know, so there's a lot of restrictions about labeling. There's a lot of restrictions about ingredients. 
uh, and even carbonation. We, we call it the bubble tax. Uh, back during World War II, they used a, a tax on champagne as a luxury tax to fund World War II. Right. And that is still on the books today. And why, that's why our meads can't be very highly carbonated. There's a threshold. Okay. If we go above that threshold, our tax goes from about $1.20 a gallon to $3 and like 30 cents a gallon. And we're trying to fight that right now. There's, there's a bunch of things on the horizon uh, with this thing called the Cider Act. And we love the idea of being able to have higher carbonation, but we think it should be open to everybody yeah. in that default wine category. Cider is classified as a wine, which right. most people don't realize. So I think that's going to be one of the limiting factors in terms of what we can do. But at the same time, you know, we are getting pretty good at maneuvering within those boundaries, and, and Paul focuses a lot on submitting formulas to the federal government to make sure that you know what we're about to make fits within right. those those parameters. And he's getting really good at, at, at figuring out what he can and can't do, and we just kind of work within the rules and, and then you know try and get creative there. I think uh, recently that we've seen a lot of positive changes in. As far as that's concerned with the federal restrictions, um, I mean, I remember trying to submit labels for approval when I started, and a lot of times I would get rejections saying, you can't call this product mead. And I'm like, but, it's, but it is mead. There's honey <laughs> and there's some spices in there. And, you know, they had very, very strict rules. And even just in the last seven years, I've seen a lot of uh, positive changes as far as that goes. And we can call a lot of our stuff mead now. Okay, so I, I think that the, the more this industry grows the more they recognize the need for some more um, leniency or at least something more specific to the product itself. And we're starting to see that. So I think it, it'll get easier for people and then the industry will grow too. I that. think consumers need to understand that the term honey wine is synonymous with the word mead. Right. Uh, because the federal government requires us to use the term honey wine in certain situations when there's additional ingredients added post-fermentation and all there's all kind I mean the, the, the rule book is, is pretty thick when it comes to what we would have to you know call it this versus call it that so I think as long as the consumer understands and the, for the time being honey wine equals mead right I think we'll be at least okay I mean I don't at the end of the day I don't really care what we call it you know as long as we can kind of make the things we want to make I mean you can call it honey wine, you can call it agricultural wine, you can call it whatever you want, but we'll call it zombie killer or scurvy shyster bastard, and, you know. <laughs> At the bottom of the label, it'll just say honey wine with grapefruit, <laughs> blah, 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 you know. More ambiguous name. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, as long as we can make it the way we want to make it, I don't care what it's called either. <laughs> Honestly, that's, that's all I care about is if we can make it the way we want to make yeah. it. I think eventually it'll come around. And, and we're not, I mean, there are other people that don't feel the way we do, that they feel very strongly about, you know, making sure that we're allowed to call it mead. And so that's kind of the big discussion in the American Mead Makers Association is, you know, what do we want to push for? Do we want to push for being able to call it mead or do we want to push for, you know, getting rid of the bubble tax or, you know, right. what is it? We're, we're kind of a small group with very little funding. Um, and, you know, if you're an enthusiast about mead, please join the AMMA and we need your money. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that's some of the limitations, but some of those limitations are really only in our mind. Well, is there anything else that you guys think are, is important for people? 
huh. know about meat or you guys or um, important now. There's nothing important about meat or us. It's just it's just a liquid. It's just something you drink to have fun. There's nothing important about it. It's just you know. Well, the one thing. <laughs> Wait a second. I mean, on the grand scheme of things, let's talk about world peace or you know the environment or well, something. Well, if everybody yeah. was making mead and beer and wine and spirits and cider. I don't know. We put a lot of effort into not taking ourselves too seriously. So, well, I think that you know one of the things I wanted to bring up is that you know we don't just do mead; we do a lot of cider too. Okay. And, um, we're actually developing a lot of new products in that category, um, and so you know I've been noticing it's hard to differentiate. See, people see our name; they just immediately think mead. Right. So it's you know, but we do make ciders, and like Dude's Rug and Slice of Life are doing pretty well actually, and um, those are just the first two that we put into the market. And we've got plenty of other, you know, new recipes coming out. So, um, but I just wanted to mention that we're also, you know, we're working on beers, but just really small right now. So okay, so you guys could eventually be kind of an all-encompassing producer. Yeah. Yeah. Spirits ever? Uh, yeah, sure. Man, we just go wherever our passion goes. Okay. You cool. can ferment it. Right. right. That goes back to that. Will it ferment? <laughs> Will it blend? <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today. It was fun. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Spay and neuter your pets.